The Near Futurist, a podcast with Guy Clapperton. Hello, and thanks for downloading The Near Futurist, a show presented by me, Guy Clapperton, and a happy new year to all my listeners. Feedback on the first few episodes has been encouraging, with some suggestions of tweaks which I'm taking into account. Now, one of those suggestions was that I should tell you about myself up front rather than at the end of the show, so here goes. I'm a technology journalist with 30 years' experience this very month. You might have heard me or seen me on the BBC occasionally, read some of my books, or seen me in The Guardian, Intelligent Sourcing Magazine, and elsewhere. Do have a look at my website at nearfuturist.co.uk, where you'll find more episodes and information on what we're about. If you'd like to book me as a speaker or moderator of your technology event, do have a look and then get in touch with my agent, whose details are, of course, on the site. If you like what you're hearing on this podcast, please do consider leaving a review on the iTunes store or wherever you download it from. It's how you make a show like this grow. But now on with the bit you're really interested in, my guest this episode. Now, five years ago, almost to this very month, I co-wrote a book called The Smarter Working Manifesto with Philip Van Houter about remote working, flexible working, and also taking into account such things as workplace acoustics. Of course, stuff changes, things move on, Philip's retired now, and the workplace has evolved, quite often in the areas that we forecast. That was a bit of a relief, I can tell you. An incoming generation takes it, for example, as a divine right that they should be able to work where and when they please, as long as the tasks get done to deadline, and co-working places have, of course, sprung up in most major cities. My guest in this episode is co-founder of The Akin, a future-focused consultancy specializing in trends and which does research into consumer groups and many other things. A consultancy has worked with large brands such as Google, Harry's, and Pernod Ricard, and her name is Sarah Johnson. Sarah, welcome. Hi, nice to be here. Thanks very much indeed. So perhaps you could start by telling us about yourself and your organization. The Akin is a global collection of consultants and it was co-founded by myself and my wonderful business partner Anna who's based in Berlin. We specialize in audience insights and strategy with an aim to create positive societal impact and we came together as a reaction to the outdated and opaque agency model. So having worked in a number of agencies, big, small, also freelance for around a decade, it seemed like a regular thing kept occurring, we kept finding. I guess we reached a bit of a watershed moment where we separately had um, kind of life-changing moments in different ways and got together and had a bit of a, a Skype chat and realised that maybe we could put words into action and actually start something ourselves. So we decided to rethink about how individual consultants could maybe work better together. And so we formed The Akin, which is ourselves at the core of it, but we also have a collection of freelance consultants called The Next of Kin. See what we did there? Yes, <laughs> um, across specialisms, locations, levels. And the idea is that we build the right team for the project. So unlike other agencies, we don't cost permanent resources. Our model is formed around the concept of transparency and ensuring freelance talents paid fairly promptly, things like that. I'm all in favour of that as a jobbing freelance myself. Fairly promptly would be yeah. an improvement, and I'm, I'm sure I don't have to tell you about that. So, obviously, the workplace is changing. You do a lot of work with other people. Uh, let's start off with the freelance thing. Is that going to have a massive impact, do you think, on uh, the workplace, or is it already having an impact? 
Yeah, I think we know that self-employment and contract work is on the rise. I think there was a recent um, national statistics survey which came out and said the number of self-employed workers is now about 15% in the UK. I think in the US it's about 27 million Americans, which is up through between 2018 to 2020 will probably leave full-time jobs, which is again another enormous cohort of people. But I think there's been a recent shift in the freelance economy with lots of recent protests around the gig economy and more reports of harassment and different problems with freelancers coming to light. And I think we're finding it's quite clear that brand practices and perhaps legislation needs to catch up a little bit with all that's happening. And I think myself, and I'm sure you have had some quite bad experiences freelancing, whether that's to do with pay or just generally the feeling of security being in the workplace, which definitely isn't permanent and feeling a little bit disposable. I think we should probably draw a distinction at this stage, it could be quite useful to do so, between the freelance economy, the gig economy as such, as I perceive it and you and I perceive it, and mm-hmm. uh, the zero hours contract thing, which is, uh, you could almost say the difference is, we are kind of voluntary freelancers, we enjoy the freelance life, there are people who get pushed into it and are tied to one particular client. Do you find the two get muddied in people's minds at all? Yeah, I think a little bit, but I think what's happening is that freelancers are now being put into the gig economy cohort, which isn't always correct, exactly like you just said. Specifically, people tend to think of freelancers as creative kind of classes of people, and that's not always the truth. You can be a consultant of lots of different industries, and I think essentially you are working in the gig economy you do have zero hour contracts but then sometimes they're more clarified and good freelancers write their own scopes of working contracts to make sure that they're not treated in that way yes also they don't necessarily get tied into the one client i mean this is what's happened to a number of organizations so you know they've written their zero hours contracts so that people cannot work for anyone else i know somebody who is a freelance does people's ironing and she identifies herself as a freelance it's not a thought leadership job as such uh, but she absolutely loves it but it's her choice and she can work for who she wants and that's exactly what she wants i think you know there is perhaps a perception out there that it's a bad thing per se do you think that's going away eventually Yeah, I think people are realising that autonomy can come within or without being in permanent contracts. And I think there's some really interesting technologies actually empowering freelancers, whether they're creative or not, to actually feel like they have more autonomy. And there's things like the Freelance Circle. I don't know if you've heard about this, but it's a really interesting platform aimed at freelancers, which allows you to leave anonymous reviews of places you work for. It's a bit like glass ceiling. But it also gives really great advice in a portal for workers to go on and learn about their rights, how to invoice always have to tax and just connecting you generally to people that freelance to feel like you're maybe not alone could you you repeat that website for uh, any listeners who might not have uh, caught it sorry the freelance circle great thank you yeah i think it's really important that when you're freelance you actually feel often obliged to take any work because you're worried that it might dry up but i think we're hoping to help people realize that freelancers have value and power and need to focus on as an agency or a business that employs freelancers maybe that they're making them feel safe and secure and empowered Um, and I think that's going to become more important as this group of people radically grow across all these different places. Absolutely. Now, another thing that's happening in the workplace, of course, is that uh, younger people are coming in. Every year they seem to get younger to me, but they're coming in with certain expectations, maybe because they've grown up with technology that makes this stuff possible, or maybe for uh, just other cultural reasons, but they seem to want more autonomy within even a staff job than my generation certainly had, possibly because it can be done, but they want to uh, work when and where they, they wish to, as long as the job gets done in the end. Are you picking that up? 
I think as a consultancy, we get a bit nervous with putting people into ages. <laughs> My dad's 64 sure. and he works autonomously, always has. And I think it's also important to remember that the traditional retirement age is shifting and that doesn't just affect the mentality of kind of young people coming in and realizing they're going to work for potentially, you know, 50 years of their life. But also we're seeing that almost 20% of the workforce are actually 65 and over currently. And I think they also want autonomy too. Um, I think it's more about discussing what autonomy means as a word. I think often in the media that gets misconstrued for flexibility and it doesn't always mean that. So yeah, that's an interesting debate in itself, I think. Yes, and you're, you're quite right to pick me up on the age point. I'm very autonomous myself as a jobbing freelance. And well, my age used to start with a four, but it doesn't anymore, shall we say. So I'm uh, possibly closer to your dad's age than uh, to yours. So it's, it's, you're quite right. It's not about age. It is about experience, skill and that sort of thing. You must have seen a number of changes in the workplace and in the freelance field over the years with uh, the consultancy and beforehand. Have there been anything that's happened that's maybe unexpected? I think what's interesting lies the debate over what the workplace is anymore, and that shifted through my career, I think. Is it your Google Drive, or is it your where your laptop sits, or is it the space that you sit in? That's what's changed radically. What does it mean to be at work now? I think physical spaces have definitely changed. I think the premiumization of the workplace is kind of getting to a little bit of a mental moment where some offices have got these gentrified, biophilia filled workscapes that seem a little bit luxurious in a way that might not be necessary and obviously this is a sweeping generalization of urban large city working spaces like London there's lots of people that still work in cubicles in bad 1960s concrete buildings but I think the shift that's happening mostly is obviously technology facilitating this cloud-based community working which is obviously decentralizing workplaces and meaning that we do all feel like we can maybe pick and choose where we feel best working and where we potentially are the most productive. Um, and that's definitely changed, I think. Yes, when I launched the Smarter Working Manifesto book, as I mentioned in the intro, I had one slide on the, my presentation, which was a picture of my workplace. And it's just a picture of the human brain, uh, a line drawing, nothing yucky. Uh, I just said, you know, that's where I work. How about you? And the audience was sort of bemused, I think. But uh, it's, it really is a matter of where you're going to work best and how you're going to be more productive. But I do detect among some companies that there's a little bit of a reaction against flexible working. Do, do you relate to that? Am I wrong? I think there definitely is, but I think there's a need for employers to maybe physically feel like they need to see people working, which is, is kind of backwards to me. I think as workplace discord due to miscommunication, I guess, is set to disappear with things like VR spaces and these idea of holo holographs of people being able to kind of have conversations. I'm, I'm kind of a bit perplexed as to why there's this concern about flexible working and I think obviously there's I run a business which literally is separated over countries Anna's based in Berlin and I'm here we rarely work in the same space unless we're deliberately at a client meeting or doing something and so there's never any confusion over productivity or debate about it and there's obviously lots of research out there that shows that it's better for mental health and productivity but I think for me the backlash against flexible working is about trust and about agency and I think if you trust your employee and give them agency they will in re like return respect that and you will see that in their work 
Do you think that perhaps some of the organisations who, and this could be a sweeping generalisation, <laughs> who have started to use uh, flexible working and maybe sort of reacting against it a little, maybe they should have trained the managers as well as the employees? Because if you're used to and you have all the skills to manage somebody who is actually in front of you <laughs> physically, that doesn't necessarily give you those things like trust, things like the mastery of the technology and all the things that you've just described to actually make sure that uh, those people are still working and feel part of a team, even if they're not physically there. Absolutely. I think that's a massive problem with the kind of future of work is the way that management training is happening right now. And I think there's actually a really interesting company really radically changing this called Consensus. They're working to try and be as flat an organisation as possible. And they effectively created a platform called Sobel. And employees are able to self-organise, manage their own time, work on whatever projects they either feel passionate about or are assigned to. And it's forcing companies to look at new ways of taking responsibility and ensuring accountability. And I think companies are nervous about that because you're completely right. Managers are not trained to digitally manage people or digitally even manage projects all the time. But I think one of the big issues here is that we live in 2018 in what I call a post-internet society, which is we don't work in you know these traditional environments anymore that maybe a lot of us have been educated to work in or even started our careers in. And I think it's difficult for people, perhaps in senior management roles, which that's the way that they've been trained and know how to deal with colleagues to suddenly shift and start understanding how to communicate in these digital forms or how to ensure that accountability or even review people's projects or work but I think you know we're not working at desktops anymore where we fax documents to each other are we so I think perhaps management training is the thing that needs to get more progressive. That's true although when you go into somebody's workplace you you might hear that uh, the desktop computer is going to be a thing of the past shortly you walk in walk into any office it's packed with desktop computers it's not uh, uh, they haven't gone away. Uh, Other trimmings have changed though haven't they I mean I've uh, increasingly I'm turning up to clients and instead of being offered offered coffee and biscuits I'm uh, offered fruit and water is it just my clients do you find people are becoming more health conscious? To us it depends on the client it ranges from fancy water to fancy coffee to sometimes booze <laughs> it just depends on the meeting you um, still get booze that's really interesting <laughs> I, I must change my clients I haven't <laughs> I haven't had that since the late 80s early 90s if you see me in the late 80s early 90s you probably see why it's a good idea <laughs> yeah sometimes I think lunchtime is probably not the right time to offer it but I think a lot of the co-working spaces you'll find actually have things like beer and Prosecco taps in them now so they do um there's there's one brand in particular I'm aware of that and uh, they've they've just had had some backlash in uh, particularly in the US they're actually going to be taking the beer taps away uh, because people are finding that uh, funnily enough after a couple of beers you're not as disciplined as you perhaps were beforehand although being self-disciplined enough not to go for too much beer in the first place is perhaps yeah. <laughs> uh, best idea. Yeah, sorry, I think, sorry, wellness, sorry, I think wellness is an interesting topic. I think depends on again the definition of it. I think whether you're as a brand just offering fruit or putting plants in the office or offering yoga, it's not really what well-being should be. It's about creating balance. And I think there's a lot of progressive companies going to lengths to actually really create that well-being, whether that's setting very clear boundaries for work time to employees, such as Audi, when you finish your work day, you get no more work emails 
but when you leave campus you get absolutely no communication because of the sensors around the, the technology enabling sensors around the building so there's some really interesting stuff going on with actually trying to reset the balance and the understanding of what work versus life is yes um, do you see any other sort of lifestyle changes and nudges in the workplace coming from employers in the near future yeah, I think there's already a huge shift in corporate social responsibility, which is looking at things like endless education and training. And I think this is either developing future skills like emotional or environmental intelligence, or maybe it's soft skills such as problem solving and creativity based upon the automation which we know is coming. And I think what it's interesting in youth-based companies is also looking at things like the idea of portfolio careers people are not wanting the same job for the next 10 years they know they're going to work for however long and they actually don't want to just do one thing um, which is really interesting and then also the final thing is to do with you know hr safety and inclusion strategies i think there's a long way to go there but um, it's obviously the concern bubbling up and instead of isolating minorities they're actually looking at ways to widening recruitment targets or even using things like the Rooney rule I don't know if you've heard of that but it's basically where you have to interview at least one woman and one member of a minority for each open position yes that's an interesting one I was going to come on to that I'm glad you mentioned inclusion I don't believe I'm still asking this in that well it's late 2018 as we record as you've uh, just uh, told all the listeners who I was hoping would believe this was live and it's uh, January the 7th 2019 but never mind we'll, gi- we'll give that away it's seriously I don't believe I'm still asking the are there enough women in senior positions are there enough women on boards and if not where are the where is the talent going to come from where is that where, where is that uh, funnel of talent going to come from so what actions are being taken what can we expect to see what should we be doing to encourage a better balance of personnel across the board yeah i think you're right the fact that we have to have separate genders in workplace discussions tells you we're a bit of the way off and i think equality on the, in the workplace is still a big issue when you look at the numbers of women on boards still shocking even when you look at directors of companies it averages at about 11 percent, which is just crazy but however there are things being changed i think i don't know if you've heard about in california the new law which they passed which means that publicly held companies based there have to have a minimum of one woman on their board by the end of 2019 and by the end of 2021 they're actually going to have to have at least two women on board out of five members and at least three out of six so. Yeah, I suppose the thing is you can't just create experienced women. I was talking to a guy who is a board director of a games company, a computer games company, and he was saying that he's giving an awful lot of, uh, putting an awful lot of investment into training women at the younger end. But in his industry, certainly, they just aren't there at senior position. You, you look for the experienced woman, all the companies are after her because there's so few of them. Yeah, I mean, that boils down to education and I think things like STEM um, programs are being pushed towards young girls, which is amazing. And I think it's incredibly important for young females to see that efforts can pay off. And from a young age, if you believe in yourself and your abilities, there's potentially positions for you. And I think that's part of the bigger problem is that for a long time things like maternity leave and you know paternal responsibilities have got in the way of a lot of those women making shifts or also young girls being told that things like engineering and technology wasn't realms and spaces for them to go into even finance is still lagging massively behind Mm. a lot of other industries and I think it stems from education the fact that we're still working out of the Victorian style model of teaching kids how you know how what they should know for their futures and also showing women that they have spaces to 
you know, fit into these roles. I think, I don't know if you saw about the girl that took home a trophy this week in the Ballon d'Or, which she um, went on stage as the youngest female ever in Lyon to receive it. And she got asked by the host if she could twerk. Yes, I did see that. Yes, I'm I'm hoping that that'll have been long forgotten by the time we go out on the air, except as a guide as to how not to do it. Yeah, (laughs) I think things like that and what's happening in the media with women's portrayals is one of the biggest hurdles that we've got. I think you're probably right. Okay. So to round off, can you tell me a bit about where should listeners find out more about what you offer, your consultancy, and where can they contact you if they're interested? Yeah, we have the classic website, which is www.thekin.com. And we've also got an Instagram, The Akin Collective. You can follow us. We put up weekly trend and insight stories on there to keep the conversations going. Sarah Johnson, co-founder of The Akin. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks. And many thanks to all of you for listening. That was the Near Futurist podcast with me, Guy Clapperton. Now that the end of year and beginning of the year scheduling nightmares are over, I'll be back in my usual fortnightly slot coming out every other Friday. So the next episode will be available Friday, 18th of January. I'll keep that up until Easter kicks in. Thank you again for listening. See you then. Bye. 